Welcome to Better Ways for Living, brought to you by HLS Healthcare. I'm Nick, and we're really excited to bring this series to you. We've collected a range of guests that we get to speak with current affairs about healthcare, disability, SDA, all of the things that are really interesting to us at the moment. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Let's meet today's guest, Trent McHugh from LifeHub Health. There's a lot of amazing tools that are out there, but what's interesting is the mindset that people bring when they look at the tool. This is not the NDIS that I remember. It's quite a, a convoluted process now. If you become accustomed to not having access to something because it, it's too hard to ask or it's, it's too hard to find a solution because the system just doesn't accommodate it mm. easily. Your idea of what goals are realistic for you changes. Mm. And I, th I think that that's probably an unspoken part of the disability sector and, and aged care. G'day Trent, how are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for coming in all the way from uh, sunny Tassie this time of year. Yeah, it's great to visit the North Island occasionally. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. So look, I, I'd like to start off with these conversations just because not everybody knows who Trent is. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what did you want to be and, and how did you end up in the, the healthcare space? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm from Adelaide uh, originally. Um, so I spent, you know, um, after I left high school, I actually got a job with Independent Living Centre, which was my first experience seeing assistive technology. Yep. Um, then went on to study at university for a while, and during that time I was actually working in disability services. And working in disability services was quite interesting for me because it was really, I had never, um, never had known anyone in the family with a, with a disability. Um, so it was quite an eye-opening experience and I did a lot of work with people in uh, rehabilitation uh, with Indigenous communities. That really got my interest so I basically left university studies and focused on being a disability support worker. You know, years later I moved to Tassie, uh, moved into mental health, I worked in mental health rehabilitation for a number of years. Um, then we had the opportunity to move to New Zealand, so I moved to New Zealand and worked in mental health rehab over there for a number of years and worked with correction services and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to manage a number of youth uh, residential services for a period of time and, and deaf yep. mental health services. Yep. Um, and that was, that was a great experience as a very forward-thinking CEO. Um, they did some really great work and I learned a lot from that. We wanted to move to Tassie, we just loved Tasmania. Um, so we moved to Launceston and I worked in audiology for a while and, and eventually ended up becoming CEO of Independent Living Centre in, in Tassie. So it was like everything came full circle. Full circle. So that your time at ILC originally, was it by design that you ended up back there? Did you actively seek that out or was this...? After working in South Australia with Independent Living Centre, uh, there's, there's such a huge value with that type of organisation of having a, a display space which brings together all sorts of different equipment that people could... Um, you know, test and trial and, and they get the look and feel of it and, and there's always new technology that's mm. on the horizon. Mm. I, I always, I was always recommending people to, to seek it out whether I was in disability or uh, mental health services or in audiology and uh, there was, it, it just so happened that there was an opportunity and the head office was in Launceston and I thought right. this is too good to pass too, up. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, went for it and um, yeah, was very fortunate enough to be given the role by the board. So, was there much of a link between the different states with IELTS, with the independent living centres? I think in in the nineties uh, they were, they were very similar, but uh, it was over time they they became more autonomous. So right. the states began to operate quite differently. 
And when the NDIS came in, uh, there was a lot of uh, funding cuts. So organisations, the, the independent living centres had to figure out how to be able to operate um, yeah. and, and make that transition. So a lot of them moved into uh, providing allied health support, uh, which is what we did in Tasmania as well. Mm, mm. Um, I know that there's been a number of them that have closed, which is really unfortunate. Uh, that's, a, that's a real big loss uh, mm. for the community. Um, and in, in Tasmania, they, they still have um, ongoing funding, but it, it's largely a lot of community-based allied health support at the moment. Right, yeah, yeah. It's a shame because it must be difficult for individuals to be able to go and look, try, see, feel, touch some of this Yeah, gear. people don't realise that. I mean, if I, if I look at something on eBay, then I can look and see if that's going to work for me or not and I can purchase it. You can't do that with assistive technology. Yeah. You have to be able to, I mean, this is, it, it isn't a piece of equipment. This is something, I mean, if you're looking at a wheelchair, this is, this is an extension of you. Yes. This is something that is going to be part of your life every day for X number of years. So you really have to be able to um, experiment and see how it feels and, and make sure that you're getting the right advice. How would you describe assistive technology? What is assistive technology? Well, assistive technology is really any, any technology or equipment that allows a person to do something, um, to perform some function. So you could look at it in that broad term, in which case assistive technology could be anything. But specifically in relation to disability is to help a person to overcome um, some, some barrier or to be able to have some level of function where they might not ordinarily have that. And that can be anything from um, vision impairment, hearing impairment, I mean, hearing aids are a type of assistive technology, um, to, to wheelchairs, hoists, um, to the larger pieces of equipment. Mm. Um, so I think it, it, it covers a lot, and it's, it's something that, I think it, it's interesting now with changes in technology because it's, it's very much morphing into our everyday life. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we have now, like smartwatches that are checking our heartbeat and our sleeping patterns and those sorts of things, yeah. which is a real crossover between what might be for a specific disability to health optimization, which I think is a great thing. Yep, 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 no, I, I, I agree. The difference with mental health, rehabilitation, disability and community space, audiology, you've, so you've touched on a number of different areas, but is it fair to say that you gravitate towards this specifically with disability care, uh, improving the lives of, of people that are vulnerable? It's interesting, it's always, it's been a recurring theme um, yeah. through my career, I think. Um, I'm, I'm always interested in, in trying to find ways to support people who may may not have the same opportunities as other people, but um, I, think, I think especially working in disability services and in mental health, you realise that when you, when you spend time with people who might be uh, marginalised because of uh, they have other barriers and other challenges that aren't really accommodated in the broader society, um, mm. that there's real insights, intelligence, capabilities, the same as, as or even beyond uh, anyone else because when you look at the level of resilience, patience, innovation, you have to be very clever and capable to be able to cope with a lot of the challenges that many of these people face. Mm. Um, mm. So I always find it really interesting learning from their experience, learning from their insights. Um, and I think that's, that's what's always brought me back to working in disability services and, and working in mental health services is I, feel, I always feel really uh, I guess learning from their insight and learning from 
just that dynamic that happens between yourself and between the families and, and learning from their stories, uh, it, it just really, it gives, it, 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 it kind of in a sense makes you think creatively. Yeah. You know, you can't just have like a linear approach of, well, if, if the number says this, then this is what the, the service should deliver. Uh, it doesn't work like that. You have to try to, there's all these dynamics that are at yeah. play. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's a lot of work in, in, in the sense of being creative, mm. um, having empathy, having compassion, inviting people into the space, um, creating a space where people can facilitate their own solutions, can facilitate their own, um, uh, you know, the, what they need and, and trying to create a, a system or a, or a service that gives a voice to people so that they can actually create the solutions that they want to see. Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? And so these people, uh, these individuals, don't, don't necessarily know what's available to them. Yeah. And, and I think this goes to what you were saying before, especially in a, in a regional area, if we can call Tasmania a regional area, I think we probably can. Yes. <laughs> uh, then uh, that, that, that challenge is, is magnified. If you become accustomed to not having access to something, um, because it's, it's too hard to ask or it's, it's too hard to find a solution because the system just doesn't accommodate it mm. easily. Um, your idea of what goals are realistic for you changes mm. and I, th I think that that's probably an unspoken part of the disability sector and, and aged care um, as well is that if if I don't expect that there's going to be a great response from um, providers or from the government or from um, the healthcare system, yeah. uh, you tend to cope with where you're at. And, and we see that a lot, in, especially in regional areas in, in Tasmania where people have built their own solutions literally from their own garden shed uh, rather than looking for assistive technology because for them they think, well, it's, it's just it's too hard. Mm. You know, people don't understand or mm. it's, it's not accepted in the broader community, so you don't really want to bring those sorts of things up. Mm. Um, it's a bit mm. of a taboo subject. Mm. Mm. Um, so people look for their own solutions. You know? and, and I think that that, that type of isolation, it, it changes what people see as being possible mm. for themselves. And we really need to turn that around. We really need to make uh, not only buildings and um, education and, and healthcare so accessible that people are able to step in and engage with that space and start to inform healthcare services, start to inform um, you know, social services what they need in order to achieve what their goals are or what's meaningful for them, what, what's their purpose in life. Mm, mm. So, and I think that that's a different discussion to normally, normally the discussion is really centred around functionality. Can we get the person to the shops? Can we? get them their meal, yep. can we get them to live independently? And while they, those are all great things, they're really, they're really the baseline levels for, survi for survival. Mm. Really what we've got to be looking at is, okay, well, what are the things that really bring out the best in the person? What is, what is it that really inspires the person? What is it that really drives them? What, what is it that's really creative in them? And what is going to be their, their contribution to the world? And these, these are the big, I guess, philosophical questions that really are they should be front and centre of what disability services are doing, but because of the demands and because of the limited resources, often it's just set to the side. Um, but I think probably after a number of years working in um, working to support people who have brain injury and, and through the rehabilitation phase, I realised that there were many people who 
really struggled to regain what they had lost because yep. of the nature of their injury, but also because of their their ability to engage with their rehabilitation program. Some people really re, uh, really engaged with it really well and had a different type of um, mindset and approach to it, and others really struggled. Mm, mm. Um, and those two approaches really determined the outcome yeah. and how the person flourished or how they didn't from that process. And I think that that's a really important question that we need to be bringing into disability services in general. Mm. Um, not just goals, but what's meaningful for you, um, what, what really drives you to get out of bed in the morning. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what's so exciting about tech now and, and, and the emergence yeah. of AI is that, we're, that what was a limitation before doesn't necessarily need to be anymore and, and we just look at communicating. You know, mm. We communicate with voice but those of us that are unable to or have lost that ability can now, with, with the different tech that's out there, can now communicate quite yeah. uh, effectively. Yeah, yeah. And I think with uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, these, these are tools that are going to give much more access for a, a lot of marginalised people. And I think what's really exciting is it's going to be changing policy. It's mm. going to be changing how we approach working with these marginalised people. Um, and and not only them, not only the, the person, the individual themselves, but their family and mm. their support network. Mm. Um, because I think when, when we start to realise that because a person is not able to communicate in a way that I'm familiar with, it doesn't mean that they're less capable or, mm. or less intelligent. It mm. just means that we haven't, and in a sense, I, I, I feel that being able-bodied, I have the responsibility to figure out what is the way to communicate with a person who might have those challenges. Sure. Um, and if, if we can bridge those connections, I think we'll find that there's, there's a huge area of our community that has a lot of insight, has a lot of understanding, has a lot of creativity that we're just not tapping into. So, the, the, I mean, yeah, the, the, the future in terms of technology and accessibility mm. is incredibly exciting because I think we're moving from functionality to more around what is, uh, what is aspirational, you know, what is, what is your vision for, for what you want to see in the world. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's an exciting space. Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you think that's going to change things in a remote so, so when we talk about regional locations in, in remote places, uh, and, and Tasmania, if it's not remote, it certainly has remote places, yeah. but uh, Australia, just by nature as well, with the tyranny of distance that we have, mm. how do you see assistive technology changing the way care is delivered in regional and remote areas? Yeah, I think part of the, part of the challenge in remote areas is it has always been accessibility to quality healthcare. Um, when you have the major population centres that have access to um, a lot of the, the specialists, there, there are many, many options, but in remote areas you, you don't have that. So, I mean, telehealth is one area that's really emerged over the last mm. few years. Mm. And initially there were you know, many questions around how effective it was going to be, because it's not the same as having us sitting here, having a conversation, you don't get that same type of rapport through, through uh, telehealth. But, Gradually, as people have become more acclimatised to using that and more proficient in using it and more comfortable, um, it, it started to open up a lot of options for, for people in regional areas. So I think in terms of assistive technology, there's always that challenge because you do need to have that, there is that tactile component to it mm, of mm. being able to, to, to check and test these things. But there, there's a lot of emerging technology now which is um, making 
um, plans or images of things very realistic um, so people can look at how this might move and work in their home or um, whether or not you know a certain type of or a certain cluster of assistive technology might be suitable for them. Being able to reduce the um, the amount of time spent trialling and testing equipment I, th I think is a huge benefit mm. but I mean you pointed out before the communications technology um, and, and the fact that a lot of jobs and workplaces are now moving online yep. um, I mean that's that's opening up a lot of opportunities. Yep. So, yep. so, so I guess we've spoken a little bit about how assistive technology is changing the way we're delivering care and those sorts of things but is it driving innovation would you say that the there's there's definitely a bridge between what was once a disability specific area and the technology that we work with in our day-to-day -day. I mean in a sense if you look at communications technology eye gaze technology when it was when it first emerged uh, people who don't necessarily have those same um, communication challenges are using that technology now mm -hmm. I mean we have smartphones we're online we're using video conferences so so those two two worlds are, are, are crossing over mm. and and I think that's really exciting when I was in New Zealand I, I uh, knew of a, a client who he was nonverbal and um, was quadriplegic and he managed to um, build up his own business as a web designer by using the technology that he had and having the, su the support network around him to help support develop a genuine business with a genuine need so mm. that he could actually operate it himself and develop it himself and he developed you know amazing skill sets because his imagination was was able to, to run free effectively yeah um, it, you know it, it creates a lot of mm. a lot of opportunities so in your opinion what's missing at the moment in assistive technology and, and access to it there, there's so much in so many different areas of the world um, there's so many great inventions and, and being able to find what you need or, or, or knowing that there's a solution that's there, uh, I think that's the hard, the hard thing. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's, there's technology that's being invented and redesigned every, every day um, and being able to keep on top of that. And mm -hmm. also I, th I think for therapists having access to, to, to what's current and what's relevant. Yep. Is, is a challenge and being able to contextualize the, the technology so we have this technology available but how are we actually going to, to use it in what context and being able to pass that information around so that other therapists are comfortable with it that, that that's always the challenge I mean yeah. technology itself is one thing but then that time lag of getting access to the people that need it that's that's what's missing so what have you seen out there that really impresses you is it in the area of AI is it in the area of robotics all of that f can fall under that broad definition yeah. of assistive tech can't it yeah, I think in, in robotics, I mean, um, Boston Dynamics has come up with some very exciting but also very scary technology, I think. Um, it's, it's incredible to see how that company has progressed in the design and development of robotics over such a short period of time. Mm. Um, I, I think that the idea of, I mean, they're looking at exoskeletons now and Unfortunately, with a lot of those companies, they go to things like the military because that's that's obviously where yep. where the funding is. But some of the challenges in robotics is being able to read and interpret balance and having a sense of balance. So, and that's something that uh, robotic engineers have struggled with for many years is trying to find how a um, how a system can find a centre of balance and be able to recalibrate itself in a way that's that's really quick. And when we think about 
walking upstairs or um, you know, even moving people or transporting people, that, that's a critical thing. So mm. I think now that robotics has, has passed that event horizon, um, that opens up a whole new range of possibilities. And you look at other type of technology, like when you look at things like uh, Tesla with self-driving cars, I mean, people, I mean, we, we might look at the, the cars and think, well, I don't know, I wouldn't feel very comfortable about it. Uh, with no one like, the, like the in the driver's seat. If I, if, I could, if I could be guaranteed that it was going to self-drive and there'll be no problems, then maybe. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I prefer to have the wheel. Um, but, uh, but that technology, I mean, being able to read and interpret what is the difference between a street sign and a cafe sign out on the side of the road, um, a pedestrian being able to interpret how far they are, is there a risk of um, hitting that person, do we have to take aversive action, etc. That, um, that scope of technology has huge potential as well in, mm. in terms of robotics because if you can begin to incorporate that into things like um, an Android, then that takes care of a lot of things like manual handling. Um, or a lot of basic functions around the house because you could have something that could be there to clean the house, even cook food. I mean, there's, there's a lot of technology out there where you can just basically download the latest Gordon Ramsay recipe and then yep. it'll make it up for you. And yep. So I think that sort of thing that used to be um, futuristic when you watch the Jetsons and you'd see them on their mobile phone and having a robot cooking food for them, we're pretty much there now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think that opens up a lot of doors because once once that side of daily living is is taken care of, then it comes back to that original question, well, well now what are we going to do? Mm. Now, what's the purpose of the sector? It's, it's if, if functionality has now been largely addressed, and, and everybody says the same thing. When, whenever I've discussed this in community groups or in different workshops in Australia or New Zealand, People always come back to, yeah, but it's about the human contact. And to me, exactly, that's, that's exactly, that's the one thing that AI and robotics can't replace. Yes. So therefore, that's where our value is. If our value is in human contact, is in empathy and compassion, um, and is in working to uh, develop a, a rapport and a connection with a person, sharing dreams, sharing experiences, they're, 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 the, they're the things that make us human, that's going to be the value of the future. Yeah. And they're seeing that now with, with AI. There's marketing companies that have um, basically transferred everything to ChatGPT, and they're finding that everybody else is doing the same thing. So it's all looking the same. The same. So the people who are journalists um, are actually getting ahead because it's unique. Yeah. So it's that unique human quality that's going to be more valuable in future, uh, not less valuable. Really interesting because there's two schools of thought thought with AI, isn't there? There's, mm. there's this is going to be the answer we're looking for, and this is going to be the end of humanity. It's the yeah. other extreme. That's the same with any type of technology. I mean, the internet was going to um, destroy all jobs as well, or it was not going to take off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think it's it's a tool, yeah. and uh, we we need to make sure that we don't become the tool for the tool. Yeah, <laughs> um, that you know we we don't. Uh, compromise on what we're doing yeah. for, the, for the sake of making things more efficient. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what AI does and what robotics will do is give us, rather than thinking about taking jobs or how it's going to, to drastically change society, what it gives us is productivity. So with more productivity, then it means that the, the emphasis now on um, creating rather than the, the practical doing side yeah, of things. Yeah. So, and then it comes down to, well, what is it that we're going to create? Yeah. 
Yep. So I take the optimistic view on that. Yeah, good. <laughs> so it's not the end of humanity, thank no, God. Just sleep better at night. <laughs> Terminator, eat your heart out. You spoke about robotics. Have you seen anything that's really impressed you? There's a, there's a lot of amazing tools that are out there, but what's interesting is the mindset that people bring when they look at the tool. Like if yeah. you look at um, any implements on a table and you think, well, how can I use it? Well, it depends on what questions and what motivations you bring to that table as to how you're going to use it. Um, you bring an artist to the table and they're going to see a whole world of other things. Mm. So it's actually our attitude and our approach that determines how we use the tool. The tool, um, yeah. So I see that there's, there's a lot of great tools that are out there and there's a lot of um, developers in the IT space and the software space where we're talking to a number of them at the moment. But what they lack is a context. Mm. They, they've got this, it's, it's like they have an amazing Ferrari, but the question is, well, where do I drive it? Mm. Uh, it, it can go in any direction, but that, that's where I really think community services has a huge value because in the same way that, unfortunately, the military gives a context for a lot of these tools, I think community services can provide context for a lot of these tools as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where, I, as a country, we need to start looking at health optimization. Um, we need to look at um, not just in inclusivity, um, but we need to look at complete integration across yep. all areas. And, and these are the big questions that this type of technology will provide a bridge for, will mm. provide a medium for that to happen. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's really exciting. What's, what's coming, what's yet to come, mm. I think is, is super exciting. And, and these the individuals that have been marginalised in the past due to ignorance more than anything. Mm. Um, and sure, I'm sure that, that, that it's not always just been that, but you'd like to think that it's at least that, yeah. uh, is, is going to change life for them. It's going to yeah. be the integration that we've been looking to try and achieve, be it through universal design, be it through supplementing through assistive technology, we should realise that in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And, I, and I think as well, a lot of the challenges that we may have faced politically and, and socially is because we're looking at it from the old model. We're looking at it from the point of view of a, a city, for example, you have your house, you have your patch of land, you have a job, you travel from here to your job and 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 this is how society works and, and this is what you do on the weekend and we have this bias, this internal bias um, that we project onto the sector. Mm. Whereas, you know, the online world um, changes that. It, it's a network-based system. So you will communicate with people that share your values and your interests. You're, you're not bound by the neighbourhood that you live in. Um, so I think that there's emerging solutions mm. that politically and from a policy perspective we just haven't caught up to it yet and and we're seeing this the world over where there's new technology like blockchain technology and then how do we create a policy to adapt to it well by the time they create a policy the technology has already changed mm. so it's 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 effectively designing its own system it's just designing its own process um, so how do we politically grapple with that <laughs> this is the That's issue, question right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the, the rate of, of, of evolution in yeah. this stuff is how do we keep up? Yeah, yeah. And it's accelerating at a faster pace. Mm. Um, I mean, you look at ChatGPT from where it was when it was first launched, um, just in the space of six months, uh, seven months, eight months, it's completely changed. Mm. Um, and there's so many AI spin-offs from that. From it, yeah. Um, you know, we, won't, we won't need actors. Yeah. Very, very soon we can... So, NDIS, 
good, bad, otherwise, <laughs> uh, dare, there. Dare, you, dare you answer the question? <laughs> um, look, I, 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 was, um, I was fortunate to be part of some working groups when the NDIS first, first emerged, um, when I was working in Hobart, and uh, it, was, it was great. There was, there was this, this vision of a space of co-design where um, participants really uh, held, held the power. Um, and, and we had to work around their needs and we had to best provide services for their needs in order to, to, win, to win the job effectively. Um, and then I moved to New Zealand and I was there for five years and then I came back and I thought, this is not the NDIS that I remember. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's quite a, a convoluted um, process now. Um, and, and it's not because of a lack of motivation. Like people are, are working very, very hard in the NDIS space, but there has to be checks and balances in, in place, but those checks and balances, is it, who is it protecting and who is it supporting? Is it supporting the participant and their families or is it supporting accountability in terms of where we're spending our money? Um, so I, I think that there's many people out there that have had fantastic experiences with the NDIS and it's, it's really changed not only their life but the life of the families who support them and, and also the, the life of the community that they live in. Um, you know, it's, it's great seeing people out and about and, and mm. interacting in the community of their choice rather than back in the days where people would be prescribed a community for them yeah. to interact in. Um, but also I've, I've seen and been part of some pretty dramatic experiences where um, equipment has been delayed for a person or home modifications especially are very complex to, um, to get right. Mm. Um, so, and unfortunately it depends on who really has the strongest voice and who has the supports to be able to negotiate or, or to navigate through the NDIS and, and I think that in itself is going to favour certain groups over others. Yeah. So, so we come into this equity issue again. Yeah, yeah. And, and assistive technology, is it easy to access for people that are on an NDIS plan? Uh, access to assistive technology is that when we spoke about awareness being <laughs> one key but but even being aware is it easy to to get access to the tech that's evolving and um, emerging I think it's it's getting easier I mean the NDIS has made some changes recently where um, technology of a certain price um, can be accessed faster and but that there's still especially when we look at when we look at it from a pediatric point of view um, if, if somebody doesn't have access to that technology in a, within a certain time and that's delayed by a year or two years, I mean, that, that's a long time mm. in the life of a five-year-old to a seven-year-old. Mm. As we were talking about with people acclimatising and adapting to, to the environment that they have, um, that changes the habits and the, the behaviours and their coping mechanisms. So, yeah, so there, there's still a lot of challenges in that space. and. And I think part of it is the from the the way that the NDIS is currently structured. I mean, there, there's necessary accountabilities where we need to understand that yes, our, the money that is going into the NDIS is being spent effectively. But the question is, it's not necessarily about the amount of money; it's about the effectiveness of the intervention. And the best people who can determine the effectiveness of the intervention are actually the people at the front line. It's, it's actually the, the therapists, it's the support staff, it's, it's the clients and the families. 
Um, and again, it comes down to meaningful goals and, and being able to demonstrate that, um, that this technology is supporting that. Mm. Whereas sometime over the past few years, we've, we've shifted to more of a quantitative view of how much money are we spending. Um, and I've seen uh, situations where people have had a certain amount of funding available, but then that's been reduced by a certain amount. And, and so an example is a person might be able to get access to a wheelchair, but not necessarily the ramp that helps them to get into the house. Right. You know, and those kind of nonsensical situations where anybody who sees it, you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But, but the fact that the, the process can, can go through its stages and come up with that as a, as a solution for somebody, that, that's a concern. Mm. Um, because I always think, well, that person's fortunate enough in the sense that there is a support network there who mm. can see that and say, that's not right and we're going to do something, we're going to advocate for that person. But I've also met many people who that would happen to them and then they'd say, oh, don't worry about it, it's just too hard. Yeah. Um, and that's a concern. It seems to be a lot of focus at the moment on keeping or empowering people to stay in their own homes for, for longer. You know, what challenges do you see that poses and, and what role do you see assistive technology playing in that? Yeah, I think that we're making some great moves with home design now, um, that people are thinking about this place as being their forever home in terms of ageing in place. Um, so we see a lot more new homes being built with wider doorways. Um, you know, they're not built with so many steps. I mean, the homes that are being built now have things like extra studs in the ceiling for um, for installing ceiling hoists. Um, so just having, having that in mind means that now if, if, if I have a disability and I'm going to need a home that's accessible, I don't have just five homes to choose from now. Mm. I have potentially 15 or 20 homes that are potentially out there, not in, not in the housing market today, mm -hmm. um, but it, it means that there's more scope to be able to modify these things to make them suit. Um, yeah. And because of that, we, we don't need to have as much of a reliance on, on the heavy duty um, assistive technology as what we might have um, done before. Mm -hmm. so, so I think things are going in, in the right direction and, and I think again is that overlap of design for the for the general population as well as some of the unique designs that are coming out of the disability space and I think if we look back 20 years ago 30 years ago the, the designs for aged care and for people with disability were very hospital like uh, you know they were very yep. standout features yep. so that's clearly a grab rail for a person who has trouble getting up yep. um, whereas now it's much more seamless mm. so it's 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 not something which has to bring attention to itself uh, I've noticed that there are some smaller architectural firms that are actually choosing to move into the SDA space mm. and and I think that's really good because you do need to spend time in that space to see that wheelchair access is not the same for everybody who's in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, the door swinging this way versus that way could be different for one person to another person. The, the type of texture that they can actually handle. Um, their upper body strength, or there's so many variables. Mm. So it's, mm. it's very, very unique, and and I think it's it's a real challenge to be able to do that in a way where it it doesn't it doesn't omit anybody else from from using that space. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I think it's there's and there's some really great initiatives. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for universal design. That, and it's not about one size fits all, is it? Because I think 
it's so many people with a disability, it's so unique to them, their needs are so specific, but is it the 80-20 rule? Is it you know 80% of the need with 20% yeah. of the solutions, or, or how does that work? Access design consultants are really valuable. Mm. Um, I, I know there's um, a person I worked with in Tasmania, he, he was fantastic. Um, he would come into the house and he'd bring his wheelchair through the house and into the bathroom and he would just point out so many small things mm. so quickly and things that you just would not think about. And builders had actually built this house specifically to the requirements of right? someone. Yeah. And he's saying, no, the, the tap's here, if, if I bump into that, it's going to put the hot water on. And, yeah. and you see all these risks all over the place. But uh, and, and like you said, part of the reason why people don't see it is because people are standing up looking at it. Mm. Whereas if you're moving around the house at his height, um, and it, it, I think it's just, again, it goes back to access to assistive tech, um, having people who are graduating from uni now having exposure to that so they don't have to be experts in it, mm. but at least having some sense that there are other factors that we need to consider here. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's going to be really important. So there's a lot to be said for the lived experience too in Absolutely. that regard, right? Yeah. 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 Well, and that, that was the original premise of co-design. Mm. is that people with lived experience could ultimately have direct influence in how services are designed, how, um, how we work with different communities around ac accessible design, assistive technology. Mm. Um, I mean, I know in Australia there's, there's a lot of great suppliers and providers of assistive tech, but who, who are we buying it for? Mm. You know, do, we, do we have people who maybe we're not hearing that voice because we haven't created an avenue for that. Mm, mm. Um, so I think, you know, again, if, if, if we were able to create those mechanisms for co-design, which again goes back to accessibility in terms of technology, mm. um, I think that's going to really change how services will look in mm. the next five to ten years. Mm, mm. Yeah. You clearly have some passion about this space and uh, even all the way back to uh, the Independent Living Centre days where you started the journey. But So why do you, why do you love what you do? I've always loved understanding how things work, understanding how systems and dynamics work and, and seeing how if people have the tools in front of them and they are comfortable and confident being who they are, then the world's a better place. And, and I think it comes down to that big question when I was studying at uni and I thought, well, what am I going, what's, what am I bringing to the world? Like, what, what am I mm. going to do in the world? And I thought, mm. well, I think I've found a place where I can help. And not helping the person as such, but actually helping the, the systems of support um, around them so that they can then go on and do what they want to do. Uh, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other week that one of my greatest moments was I had worked with uh, somebody in mental health services in Auckland and um, they were a, a bit of a challenging person for, for many of the, the staff but we, uh, we worked with them for a, a period of months and they, they managed to stay in school and they eventually graduated and um, I heard from them just a couple of years ago. They sent me a text message and they said, oh, I just wanted to through LinkedIn and they said, I just wanted to say thanks for, um, for all the work you did. I'm, I've now just graduated as a uh, youth counsellor and they were living right. in Brisbane. Yeah. So that was four years after yeah. after they graduated from that program and I thought that's, because I always think, well, that person's now going to go on and change the lives of many other people. So if we could do that and if there are many people that were doing that, then 
that's the way to change the world. You spoke to me a little bit earlier about uh, LifeHub Health. So are you, are you able to tell me a bit about LifeHub Health? What's happening there? Yeah, so this, this is, um, I guess, a, a dream that I've had for many years. <laughs> and I've always thought, oh, if, if I could do something, then this is how I would love to do it. And I, I sort of made the decision um, this year to take some time out and to, to develop um, this, this idea. So, so effectively, LifeHub is built on the idea of the network, that the, the network and people being able to find people who share the values and the interests and the passions is, that will bring about results much faster than the traditional approach. So the, the traditional model is, is effectively built on a, a, a structure where you have an authority that then determines the next level and then that determines the next level and so on. Um, and there's always a, a time lag in that because if, if things need to happen in a service, um, by the time that that's actually fed up to the person who's the decision maker, it's already, mm. you know, times have changed and, and circumstances have changed, so, it's, so it's, it's very slow to adapt. But when you have a network of people, when you have frontline staff who are empowered to make decisions, it's much more dynamic. So, so LifeHub is effectively a, a, a business operating network where therapists and nurses can join up. They effectively run their own business. We provide all the business back end for them, all the, um, the CRM, the operating systems, the financial processing, the practice managers, the virtual assistants, um, everything. And we support them to find clients that will align with their interests and with their career development goals. Um, one of the strengths of the, the system is that it has a learning management system. So people can upload courses, people can find courses of their interest, um, and this is worldwide. And the interesting thing with making it international, and that was intentional from the beginning, is that there's a lot of approaches and interventions and technology that's available in different parts of the world that we don't see. Yeah. And it's one thing having somebody say, oh, here's this piece of technology and this is what it could be used for. It's another thing having a clinician who is effectively giving a case study about how they supported a person to achieve their goals. Oh, and by the way, this is a key part of that, mm, you know, mm. which happens to be this technology. So in, in a sense, it inverts the whole process. It basically puts the frontline staff and the clients at the forefront and then the organisation in the background. Yeah. But I had a lot of people coming out and saying, this is great, you've, you've got to, you've got to uh, build this It'll because build I, I know of 10 people, 15 people who could benefit from this. Um, so yeah, so we've been building away and uh, we're not too far away from launch now and um, yeah, really excited and looking forward to, to seeing how it's going to work um, across Australia and, and, and around the world. Yes. If you could have one wish in healthcare, yeah, what would it be? One wish. <laughs> if we begin to measure optimization of health, and, and that was a central focus of policy development everywhere, I think the flow-on effect of that would, would have significant changes in, in services. Um, so I think changing the, the policy and the mindset to we're about optimizing health and, and what does being healthy mean, um, I think that, that would be it. And I, th I can see that that's, that's already on the horizon. We're already making progress towards that, which is great.
So Trent, we like to finish off with uh, with something a bit fun. It's been a great conversation, and uh, one of the questions that we ask all of our guests is: uh, if you are hosting a private dinner, who's on your celebrity invite list? How many people? It's your party. <laughs> um, I think Leonardo da Vinci would be one. Um, I think Gandhi would be another. Um, Barack Obama would be somebody else. I think that in itself would be a very interesting conversation if if we could understand da Vinci's language. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got the assistive tech well, for it that's now. it, exactly. <laughs> um, they're probably people who have stayed true to their vision um, and have put forward what they think what they think needs to be said in the world. Um, people like Martin Luther King. Um, I love the, the story of Martin Luther King and, and how, how he was able to bring so many people to his cause through talking about a vision as to how things could potentially mm. be. Um, you know, and that, that, the ripple effect that that had. Mm. Um, I think if I could have a, uh, a fictional character, it would probably be Master Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> That would be an interesting conversation with all those in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. That gives a whole new meaning to assistive technology and AI, doesn't it? Trent, thanks so much for your time. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to any of your podcast streamings, and we'll catch you next time on Better Ways for Living.